Welcome to the Benzo Free Podcast, your home for an honest, straightforward, and personal discussion about anti-anxiety drugs, their effects, and how to deal with dependence and withdrawal. Whether you have taken benzodiazepines, Z drugs, or any other tranquilizers, know someone who has, or you just want help dealing with chronic anxiety and insomnia, this is your podcast. I'm your host, D.E. Foster, author of the book, Benzo Free, The World of Anti-Anxiety Drugs and the Reality of Withdrawal. I'm so glad you joined us today. Please stick around and let me bend your ear for a few minutes. It just might feel a little better on the other side. Hello there, this is Dee, and welcome to episode 111 of the Benzo Free Podcast. This is our holiday episode since it's December, and I'm recording this. I think it's actually December 1st as I'm recording this. Hopefully it'll come out in the next day or two. But welcome, welcome to our holiday episode. Not that we're going to talk a lot of holiday, it's just that's when it's coming out. We have plenty other content that we'll be speaking about today. But I hope that everybody has some event, something going on, um, people around them for the holidays. I just think it's important to have that in our lives. And I hope that's true. The, you know, I appreciate the gifts I have, like the gift of family after losing my parents. I realize how important the gift of family is right now. And um, I am very grateful that for, for me, it's more on my wife's side of the family because most of her family is still there. And um, after losing a big chunk of the, my family, both my parents and my cousin, um, you know, in the last year, year and a half. So um, it's just nice to have that family around to help you get through things. And I am very grateful for that. I just wanted to say that. I've been busy lately. A um, lot of stuff going on. And that's been really cool. I, you know, I want to say one quick thing. I just got out of a meeting. Lots of meetings lately with all the work groups on Benzos that we've been doing. But just got out of a meeting where... I did some voiceover for a video for a project, and um, the feedback came back in this meeting that um, my voice was too slow, <laughs> too slow for the video. And I'm so glad that she spoke up because she was right. It was too slow. In fact, I intentionally tried to slow down my voice for the video, and I, I think I went too far, and we'll probably clean up the video at a later time, and I'll try to do my voice a little better. But it's interesting because it brings back how my voice is on this podcast, and it's a good topic that came up and was even talked about in that meeting a little bit, but, um, and that it's erratic sometimes, and I know that. There are times when I get talking naturally and like I'm having a conversation, I talk in a higher register, and I talk quicker, you know, kind of like this, and I just have this conversation. I do this a lot with interviews and stuff like that, but you know how they talk and they kind of move and move and move like this, and I can keep talking this way. I can talk real, you know, there were times at times that people thought I could have been, you know, one of those um, broadcasters who reads the disclaimers at the end of commercials. My dad, when we moved from Chicago to um, Kansas City when I was a kid, um, I remember my dad used to call me a machine gun mouth because I talked so fast when I was a kid. And when I moved to Kansas City, it was weird because the pace of talking was slower in Kansas City than it was in Chicago. So I had to adapt and try to talk a little slower. But still, when I'm talking to friends and family and stuff, I often talk pretty quickly, kind of like I am right now. So you can kind of get a feeling for what I do. But when I come to the podcast, a lot of times then I slow things down intentionally. I did that from very beginning at the podcast. I thought it was better to have a lower voice, um, to have a slower voice, 
to have a little more um, a slower deliberation because we're talking about anxiety and we're talking about things that are fast and the hyper-paced world out there is one of those things that sets us off, sets off our symptoms sometimes. And so I thought it was appropriate. Now, some of the feedback I get from you is, well, love your voice. Um, I fall to sleep to it. I get that a lot. And um, I take that as a good thing. I think a calming voice for this podcast makes sense. So yes, on purpose, I slow my voice down for this podcast and do so. But is it erratic? Yes, it is. And I know that. Um, when I do interviews, I forget about intentionally slowing down and talking to you in a calm manner. So I fall back into that other mode because I'm having a conversation. But I didn't take any offense to it. I realized that it was a little slow for that recording. Happy to go back and re-record it. Anyway, so <laughs> I, just, I don't know why I went there. That's that's off script. That is not on the script for today. But I just thought I'd throw that out there because it was on the top of my mind. So I'm going to fall back to my normal podcast voice. That's what I call this, which is hopefully a blend of not too slow. So I put everybody to sleep, but still my natural baritone voice. And this is my natural voice when I slow down. I just drop like an octave. Um and I think that's more appropriate for this podcast. So hopefully it's working for everybody. We'll see. <laughs> but I have been um, busy lately. I, I, I say that in every episode, it seems like it. But a lot of progress on the website. I realize that you might be tired of hearing that on this podcast because I think I've been saying it for like a year and a half now <laughs> because that's how long I've been working on my new website. But I am making a lot of progress on it. Um, I'm hoping right up soon after the first of the year, I will have the new site up and running. What that does for me is it reduces, I have three sites right now that I'm updating. I have my original Benzo free site, the, the, then the older easing anxiety site, and then this new easing anxiety I'm creating, which is on a different platform. So all my posts had to be redone and reprogrammed and, uh, but the goal of all of it is to reduce my workload um, on the side of all the administrative work, all the, you know, typing out the post descriptions and getting things uploaded and trying to make my processes as simple as possible. So I'm hoping that that will take hold soon and will, will make a difference. But we also are working on this peer training course. I wanted to let you know with the benzodiazepine action work group, we are teaching our pilot classes for this benzodiazepine peer support training course next Monday on December 5th and the 12th on two Mondays. It's a 12-hour course that we spent almost a year developing. The core team that we put together here has been amazing. There have been so many people working on this, so many players. We brought in so many different consultants. It's just become this, this big project, and we've had the funding. The funding supported us. Um, I'm just really excited. Um, I'll be teaching the pilot training course along with Dr. Christy Huff from Benzodiazepine Information Coalition. So we'll be co-teaching that um, along with our training consultant, Ginger Ross, with Choices Training. So, um, And then so many other players were involved in this, and it's just been great. I, I'm, I'm really proud of the team. I'm proud of all the work we've done, and um, I think it's going to be pretty cool. One of the great things about this is we filled this class up in just days. Um, we first thought we were trying to get like 12 people. We were, I thought we were going to scrape and try to find 12 people. It's a this first class is free because it's the pilot, but I wasn't sure what the interest level would be in a benzodiazepine-specific um, training course for peer support people. People, we Within a day, we filled those 12, and we then expanded it to 24, 
Within two days, we had that filled too and had to cut it off. Now we've added some other administrative people who are going to oversee the class. So we're like at 30 or 31 registrants right now. Um, I'm just amazed at the interest in this class. This is just Colorado only. So the only people that could actually take this class because it's a pilot was Colorado. And so from that group, we had a lot of interest. And that, I think, says something. I think that says that people out there in the medical communities and the social um, social work communities and the psych- psychology communities, I think they're, they're aware of this and, uh, to a degree, and they're interested in learning more, and especially in the peer support community. So I think, I think this is going to be a really good thing, and I'm really excited about it. So um, yeah, so we'll let you know, but the pilots are December 5th and 12th. Next year, 2023, we'll start launching it first in Colorado for real, and then we're going to launch it nationwide. So I'm excited about that anyway. Moving on, um, it's been a bit iffy for me lately. Iffy meaning um, up and down. Emotions, symptoms, um, some stuff bugging me lately. Um, You know, sometimes I think all this benzo stuff happened for a reason. Whether God or fate or some other supreme unifying consciousness. I have no idea. But sometimes things I do, I think sometimes they happen for a reason. Or more likely, I, I want to believe that. Maybe maybe that's more accurate. Last week, I was hit with a new symptom. I mean, it's actually an old symptom that I hadn't had for a while, but it came back pretty strong and stayed. Um, real quick, earlier in my um, in my benzo withdrawal, I had three types of tinnitus. One was a really distant white noise, high pitch. It wasn't there. I mean, if I focused, I could hear it, but there was always this constant kind of white noise. I just think I've had that. Second was um, a high pitch one that would come, but usually would leave within a, like 60 seconds. It would be, and then it would leave again, but really high pitch. And then third was this, what's called pulsatile tinnitus, which is tinnitus that pulsates with the beat of your heart. Now, all of these were mild to moderate, and they came and went, and I didn't worry about them too much. But some of that's come back. It's easy for me to say I feel for each of you, or that I, you know, that I get where you are coming from, or that I understand how hard it is for you. It's, it's easy for me to say that for those of you suffering with benzodiazepine withdrawal or bind. But I'll admit, I, I may not feel it still like I used to. It, you know, it's been a while since I've had it really bad. I've, I've had waves lately, some moderate, but nothing like what it was at the start. And that's a great thing. That's a great thing. <laughs> but I want nothing more than to be there with you to completely relate to what you are going through. But time creates distance and feelings and memories fade with that distance. Hearing your stories of struggle is a huge reminder for me of what I feel I, I can still, I feel like I still can relate to you when I hear those, but still it's not quite the same as still being there in the thick of it. Like so many of you are, you know, I'm eight years out and a lot of things in my life have improved. That's why I'm able to do this podcast and able to work with these work groups and able to have a pretty normal functioning life. So back to the tinnitus. About a week ago, I've had 
this pulsatile tinnitus come back. And this time it was much stronger. Very high pitched in my right ear. It came and went for a couple of days and now it's become pretty constant. Unfortunately, it's starting to disrupt my sleep pattern a little bit. It's starting to disrupt, disrupt how I um, work in the daytime and it's created some fear of mine. So this is one kind of took me a step back and I, I, I was trying to, I started looking up of what might be another cause for this. And I found mostly cardiovascular issues, which doesn't settle well, as you can imagine. But still, I worried it caused sadness, it's caused depression. I start to wonder the what ifs, this never goes away and I have to live with this. The same patterns that I know I was in back in the early days of benzos. And that takes me back there. And, 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 and I started to get sad and I got depressed and I was having emotions. And some of the emotions of the loss of my parents was kicking up. And I can't cry, which is another factor. Because when I totally guttural sob, I now have this hyperventilation syndrome that kicks in, which means I can't breathe. And talk about scary. Um, and I can't breathe. And the last time I really broke down and I know the loss of my parents was coming into it and I was, had this guttural cry and my wife was there and it was from the diaphragm. And suddenly I just had to stop crying and try to breathe because I couldn't breathe. I couldn't catch my breath. And it just took me probably five minutes to finally get back to where I could breathe almost normally. And that was not fun. That's not, that's not great. But, but when I'm having this sadness now, I also know that crying isn't necessarily the option. I can let a little bit out and I need to figure out how to let some emotions out without going full, full bore and, and wind up with this. But anyway, all this got me thinking and got me thinking about, um, this stuff happening for a reason. You know, I think I get these reminders. There's a reason why. I believe there's a reason why I still have symptoms. I believe there's a reason why I still struggle and sometimes have these setbacks. I believe that reason is so that I can communicate with you better, so that I can understand you better, so that I can be reminded of what this fear is like, of what this frustration is like. Just a little sample now and then really can help. You know, um, feeding into this, I'm going to go off on a slight tangent here, but I had a haircut yesterday at Great Clips as I was checking out with the stylist. She noted the time was exactly 1.11 p.m., and she told me that was the angel number. I really didn't know what the angel number is, but I smiled and respectfully said, that's nice, thank you, and she thought it was great. She, I thought, well, I'm not an angel, although I realized later that's not what that referred to because I'm nowhere near an angel, but... But it was still a nice note to end on, and I thought it was kind of cool, and she said, it's a good thing. So I was thinking, oh, okay, you know, put it in the back of my mind and moved on. Then yesterday, I was typing up the script for today's podcast. <laughs> the number of this episode is 111. Yes, I'm sure it's a coincidence. But then again, there's always that small part of you, or of me, that wonders, you know, can there be more sometimes? Can there be a reason for some of this stuff? So just for fun, I looked it up. The numbers 111 or 1111 can mean a few things. It can be that opportunities are on the way or that 
This is the start of a new beginning. And that sounded pretty good. Or it is the sign of enlightenment and good luck, which I like. Or that I am happy in my current relationship, which I am for sure. Or to focus on your dreams and don't give up, which sounds like a good message to me. But the most common meaning I found was one of abundance and happiness. I actually got chills. Because yesterday, the topic of my meditation, which are selected by my phone at random from about 50 different meditations I go through, was one from Deepak Chopra on abundance. <laughs> I know, I know these are all three different coincidences. I'm sure they are, but still... Is it so bad to think that maybe there's something behind them? And maybe there's a reason why I have some setbacks. And maybe there's a reason why I still get some symptoms. And that is so that I can stay more in touch with each of you. I don't know. There is a part of me that is the wondrous, curious child. And it makes you wonder. It makes you wonder. And it raised my spirits and it made me feel good. And what's wrong with that? Our format today returns to our full standard lineup. We start with an introduction, which you just heard. Follow up that up with our mailbag, our benzo story, our feature, which is dedicated to non-benzodiazepines or Z-drugs, based on a request from one of our listeners. And I'll close it all out with our moment of peace. But before we move on, don't forget, we'd love to hear from you. Comment on our videos on YouTube, on our podcast posts, or via our feedback form at easinganxiety.com slash feedback. And while you're there, perhaps you might want to subscribe to our mailing list or even donate to support the work we do. Every little bit does help. And remember, the Benzo Free Podcast is for informational purposes only and should never be considered medical advice. Now, let's take a look inside our mailbag. In the mailbag today, I went back to the archives a bit. Um, it's the end of the year, it's December, and I thought, you know, let's go back and see if I've missed a few things along the way. The truth is, I can't share all the questions, comments, and stories that I receive. And several of them wind up never making on the podcast. In fact, most of the ones I receive don't make on the podcast. There's just not enough time on the podcast to cover everything I get. So sometimes I like to go back a bit and see what I've missed. So the following questions are from 2020. But they're still just as relevant today as they were when they were first asked. Our first question is from Paul. I don't have permission to share his name here, so I will call him Paul for now. <laughs> Paul writes, Do you think dosage matters? The fact that I took a quarter milligram of Xanax for three years each night, then switched to Clonopin a quarter milligram for one and a half years. It was nearly five years total. Do you, do you think dosage matters? Or time on the drug? I mean, am I better off that I only took that amount? And what about reinstatement? Well, thank you for your um, question, Paul. I appreciate that. The short answer at the beginning of your question is we don't know. Dosage, time on the drug, we don't really have enough research to tell us. Keep in mind that a quarter milligram of Xanax or Clonopin equals about five milligrams of diazepam or Valium. So, it's always important to keep in mind that not all benzos are created equal. 
Xanax, Clonopin, and Halcyon are the most potent of the benzodiazepine class. They are about 20 times as potent as Valium, although different sources don't always agree. But back to dosage and time. The truth is, we are sorely lacking research on so many areas related to benzos, including dosage, length of prescription, genetic factors, environmental factors, pre-existing conditions, the type of benzodiazepine you took, speed of taper, support systems, you name it, we really don't know. Logically, I would think that dosage and time on a drug could be factors as to your difficulties in withdrawal, but to what degree, we have no idea. I wish I could tell you. We need research. As for reinstatement you mentioned, there is some evidence that benzodiazepine withdrawal can be more difficult the second or third attempt due to a condition called kindling. Most experts agree that it is best to taper slowly, even pause at a level for a while if needed due to symptoms, you know, rather than updose or reinstate once you are completely off the drug. I hope that helps. I know I don't have a lot of information for you, but it's a good question and it's one we need to keep pushing to try to get research to help us understand all these different factors. Our second question is from Robert in West Virginia. And since I do have permission to share his name, well, I'm guessing his name is Robert. Anyway, Robert asks, I used benzos recreationally for 45 years, the last 15 years heavily under a doctor's care. I decided to go to a detox facility and they damn near killed me. My family doctor took over my withdrawal three and a half years ago using oxazepam 10 milligrams as taper for six months. I've been clean for three years now and still feel like I'm having symptoms sometimes. Recently, I had a procedure on my back where they gave me two milligrams of Valium before, and I've been feeling a little strange since. I'm wondering if this could be caused by rebounding. Thanks, Robert. It's a great question, and one that I fought with not too long myself. First off, so sorry to hear about your experience with detox. I wish I could say that I've heard a lot of good stories from detox, but that's not the case. In fact, off the top of my head, I can't think of one really positive story of benzo withdrawal at a detox facility. Perhaps there are some, but I don't recall hearing of one. This is another area that we really need to make some changes and to focus some attention on. As for benzos for medical procedures, I just released a month ago episodes 108 and 109 of the podcast on my foot surgery, where I was given midazolam for the procedure. I personally had little reaction, if any, to that as far as I can tell. But your situation is a little bit different than mine. If they only gave you a single dose of diazepam or Valium prior to the procedure, I would hope that the chances of you rebounding are slim. But again, we really don't know for sure. I have heard of some people who have stated that they have had a recurrence of symptoms after a one-time benzo for a medical procedure. Not a lot, but a few. The good news is that most of them stated that the wave was short-lived. And once it passed, things returned to how they were previously. Another factor that can come into play here is the anxiety of the procedure, though. Most surgeries and medical procedures come with increased anxiety. And as we all know, anxiety in of itself can trigger a wave of symptoms. 
Who knows? Is it possible that this recent bout of tinnitus that I'm dealing with might be related to my surgery two months ago and the midazolam that I took? I think it's a long shot. It's been two months, <laughs> but I guess I can't rule it out completely. I'll continue to monitor that and let you all know. All right, that's it for our mailbag. Thanks to Paul and Robert for sharing their questions with us. And now, let's move on to our Benzo story. Today's Benzo story is from Valentina in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And in the spirit of looking back on our archives, this one is also from 2020. Like many of the stories we share, this is a tough one. And it's going to be triggering for some people. Now, I've said this before, but I share these with you for the exact reason that Valentina says at the end of her story, because they connect. These stories connect people who are often in a desperate state and just want to know that someone, anyone out there, understands what they've been through. I understand that these stories can also be triggering for some of you, but for some people, it is that one connection that they've been desperately looking for. In addition, I think it's important that people have a place where they can share what they've been through. If this is a concern for you about this being triggering, I totally respect your decision to please skip through it and go to the next section. Don't forget that we always have a chapter list in our show notes to make it easy for you to skip ahead. Also, I do want to let you know that Jessica recorded her story using a talk to text function due to her condition. So I edited it a bit just to help it flow. Jessica writes, I wanted to share my story. Bear with me. This is talk to text. I'm having trouble focusing. I was put on clonazepam, one milligram. The prescription was originally for three times a day, but I only took it one time a day in the evening. I was put on it due to Lyme disease-induced anxiety. The doctor that put me on it was a psychiatrist and supposedly a pharmacologist. He also put me on Lexapro, which I stopped taking several years ago with really no issues that I noticed for 13 years that I was on this medication. I didn't understand, though, what was happening to me. I was totally not myself. Nothing seemed to satisfy me. There was no pleasure in life. I was pretty miserable. The doctor told me the clonazepam would be easy to come off. As we know, that was a lie. Fast forward now, October 16, 2020. I was told by a doctor he would no longer prescribe it. I went to see a psychiatrist in Tulsa. I told him I wanted to come off. He asked me why. I explained my situation and why I felt it was time. He said he would continue to fill it as long as I wanted it. I told him I definitely did not want it. I wanted help. He never explained withdrawal or anything. He just got up and walked out on me. Today, I've been off the medication just over 15 weeks. When I went to the hospital the day after my first dose, I thought I was having a heart attack. The doctor in the ER asked me to go see another doctor. I asked him what was wrong, after they ran a CT scan, blood work, and a multitude of other tests. He never gave me a referral, 
but he said he would. And then eight hours later, I was sent on my way. I did not have a primary care doctor at the time. I had no one. And he flat out told me he would not give me a prescription for the clonazepam. I had no idea what acute withdrawal syndrome was, but I do now. And I'm very deep into it. Scared, alone, trapped inside my own body. Trying to figure out from minute to minute what may or may not have happened. I've been on several Facebook sites and other sites to try and figure out what's going on with me. I'm 59 years old, missing out on a lot of life, and realize I have been for the last 13 years. I was locked in a stupor hell with the medication, and now I'm locked in a body that's on fire. All because no one ever explained to me, nor would I ever think that something like this would happen. I've only been in Tulsa, Oklahoma for six weeks, and now I don't know how long I'll have to stay in a place I really don't care for. Because I can't leave my house. I'm alone. I came across your podcast and was very surprised to hear the story of the other young lady here in Oklahoma. And I felt I needed to reach out and share my story as well. Thanks, Valentina. Uh, I know that's a hard one to hear, but it's one we need to share. And that closing message that Valentina wrote there is exactly why I do this. She came across the podcast and she was very surprised to hear this other story of another lady in Oklahoma. That's that connection. And that's why we read these stories. I'm so sorry to hear about your story, Valentina, and I'm sorry it took me so long to share it here. I sure hope that your situation has improved. You know, the whole doctor situation where the doctor would no longer prescribe it, that is a huge problem. We've seen that um, here. We've seen it overseas. We've seen it many places where either the doctor doesn't know enough and they just take you off the drug, or we've started to raise enough awareness that now the doctors are afraid to prescribe any drugs and they wind up cold turkeying, you know, all this group or, you know, sudden cessation, whatever term you want to use. And all this stuff happens. And it's frustrating. And it's, um, it's got to change. It's got to change because we need educated medical professionals who can help us through these very difficult times. Missing out on life. Um, I get that. I think we've all felt that. I surely felt that. I think I even wrote an article a while back um, on the pod, on the on our website about the missing years and how I missed my time with my dad because my dad had Alzheimer's. And of course, now he's passed on, but I missed a lot of years with him because of what I was going through. And that makes me want to cry, although I'm not going to because I don't want to break down and start to hyperventilate while I'm talking with each of you. So see, there comes the humor. I start to laugh because that's my control, the control, the crying, even though I need to process my emotions via the... It is a mess. It's been a hard couple of weeks for me. Honestly, reading Valentina's story here makes me understand that even as hard as it's been for me the last couple of weeks, how much better off I am than where I was and where so many of you are. So, Anyway, I want to thank you for sharing your story, Valentina. And I surely hope if you ever, if you're still listening or out there somewhere, 
you want to write back, I would love to hear an update of how you're doing. I hope things have improved. If you want to share your Benza story, please um, go to our feedback form at easinganxiety.com slash feedback. Or if you just want to share it privately with me, don't mark the box that says you're willing to share it publicly and I won't share it publicly. I'll just get back to you and, and let you know that I received it and, and understand. So, And that's it. So now without further ado, I think we should move on to our feature. Our feature today is about non-benzodiazepines, more commonly known as the drug. <laughs> okay, I'm just going to leave that in because I need a little bit of levity here after reading that last story. Is the drug. Okay, let's try this again. <laughs> Our feature today is about non-benzodiazepines, more commonly known as Z drugs. See, I can say the term. <laughs> Our topic today came from Gary, a longtime friend of the podcast. For the past several months, Gary has requested that I do a podcast on Z-drugs. This started in July with the following email from Gary. He said, How you feeling, D? I am weaning off this Ambien. It is much tougher for me than the volume was by far. You do learn so much about yourself when you go through this, and no doubt, you get through this. One can move mountains. Well, I corresponded for a long time with Gary and still do. He has a lot of great feedback for the podcast, and I just want to let him know how grateful I am for all the information he's provided. But in September, Gary asked if I could do a podcast about Ambien, and I said that it would be a good idea. Unfortunately, as I mentioned to Gary, I often schedule my podcast topics out a few months, so it might be a while, and I put it in queue along with dozens of other ideas for future podcasts. But Gary didn't give up, and I'm glad he didn't. His persistence paid off, and here we are. So thank you, Gary, for sticking with it and for making sure that this topic gets covered. It was an oversight by me that after 111 episodes, I haven't done an episode dedicated to non-benzodiazepines and Z-drugs, and I realized that, so let's try and rectify this. So here's the Z-drug episode. And since it is my favorite format, it must be because I wrote my book in this format, I'm going to fall back on our Q&A style. I hope you like it. Let's dive into the first question. Question, what are Z-drugs? Okay, Z-drugs are officially called non-benzodiazepines. There's no dash in there. It's all one big word, non-benzodiazepines. <laughs> so you just read it as one. The term Z-drug came from the generic names of many of the drugs. Many of them started with a Z. And much like benzodiazepines, which are often referred to as BZDs in medical literature, Z-drugs fall under the NBH classification, which stands for non-BZD or non-benzodiazepine hypnotics. Z-drugs are chemically different from benzodiazepines. Much like the name suggests, Non-benzodiazepines lack the defining fused benzene and diazepine rings of benzodiazepines. So there are a different class of medications from benzodiazepines. Technically, the term Z-drugs is used to refer to a subset of the non-benzodiazepine class, which includes Zolpidem or Ambien, Zoloplon or Sonata, Zopiclone or Imavane, and Azopiclone. Lunesta. 
So Ambien, Sonata, Imovane, and Lunesta are probably the four most common brand names of Z-drugs. Question, when did Z-drugs first hit the market? Well, benzodiazepines go all the way back to the 1960s. Z-drugs didn't come along until the late 1980s and early 90s. Zopiclone, or Imovane, was approved by the British National Health Service in 1989 followed quickly by Ambien, then Sonata, and in 2005, the FDA approved Lunesta, in addition to an extended release version of Zolpidem, marketed as Ambien CR. Question. Do Z-drugs act like benzodiazepines on the body? Much like benzodiazepines, Z-drugs act on the same GABA-A receptors. Thus, even though they are chemically dissimilar, their effects and consequences appear to be much the same. According to Waller 2018 in Medical Pharmacology and Therapeutics, Zaloplon, Zolpidem, and Zopaclone, the so-called Z-drugs, belong to different chemical classes, but interact in a similar manner with the postsynaptic GABA-A receptor on neuronal, neuronal, neuronal membranes. Neuronal or neuronal? <laughs> Okay, I really don't know on this one. <laughs> um, on neuron, it's the you know the neuron membranes. <laughs> Is it neuronal or neuronal? I don't know. Somebody will correct me. I'm just going to leave that in. Anyway, they bind to regulatory binding sites on the receptor that are close to but distinct from the benzodiazepine binding sites. So they have their own binding sites. Benzodiazepines have their own binding sites. And of course, GABA has its own binding site all on the GABA-A receptor. Make sense? I think so. Anyway, as I was doing my research for this episode, one thing struck me more than anything else. Much of the research articles and information pages on Z-drugs combined their studies with benzodiazepines. Now, I would think that this would only be the case if the scientists believed that their mechanisms and effects were similar to benzodiazepines. Here's, a, here's an example. I did a simple Google search on the keyword Z-drug taper, and it brings up the following. Deprescribing benzodiazepines and Z-drugs. Benzodiazepine and Z-drug safety guidelines. Clinical guidelines for tapering benzodiazepines. Withdrawing patients from long-term use of benzodiazepines. Deprescribing benzodiazepine receptor agonists. Benzodiazepine use disorder phenobarbital use in benzodiazepine and Z-drug detoxification, and on and on. You sense a trend? The takeaway here is Z-drugs don't nearly get the attention that benzodiazepines do. Gary has a really good point. And even though benzodiazepines have been around much longer, or at least longer, by about 20 years, we still need more research on Z-drugs independent of benzodiazepines. And second, each of these articles talks about Z-drugs alongside benzodiazepines, which further emphasizes my earlier point that even though the chemical structures are different of these drugs, their effects do appear to be quite the same. So if you're looking for information on Z-drugs, it does appear that most of the time, the information provided for benzodiazepines is very similar. Question, what are Z-drugs typically prescribed for? 
the most common condition for prescribing Z drugs is sleep disorders. In fact, many physicians have turned to Z drugs due to their concerns about benzodiazepines and dependence for patients who struggle with insomnia. I think most of the medical instructors, you know, here, opinion here, <laughs> not scripted, just going off on a tangent for a second. I think medical professionals and us, the patients, are often looking for a drug. I think many of us that have been through benzodiazepine withdrawal are no longer looking for drugs. We've learned our lesson, but in the general population, we want the magic pill. We want that pill that's going to fix things. And doctors who only have, what, on average of seven minutes with us in a primary care setting want to give us that medication that's going to cure us and get us out of the office. This is the situation we're in, thus the problems we've created. When barbiturates have all these problems, we come up with benzodiazepines. When the problems with benzodiazepines become more um, known, we come up with Z-drugs or non-benzodiazepines. As those become known, we're going to SSRIs and SNRIs, which have their own problems of withdrawal and complications. We keep looking for the new drug to replace the old drug, but the new drug doesn't seem to be much better than the old drug. <laughs> I think this is a pattern we need to figure out. I think we're still looking for the magic pill or the holy grail. But maybe it's not in a pill form. Maybe it's in cognitive behavioral therapy. Maybe it's in meditation. Maybe it's in anxiety tools. Maybe it's in breathing techniques. Maybe it's in yoga. Maybe it's in whatever other method out there. Maybe it's in acupuncture. Maybe it's in holistic medicine. Maybe it's in a naturopath. There are other places to go look. And maybe the answer is out there. Maybe it's not in a pill form. And yes, that's my soapbox. I just went off on a tangent. There you go. I'm going to move back to the questions. <laughs> Question. Are Z-drugs more or less likely to cause dependence than benzodiazepines? Well, let's look at some of the um, articles out here. In Drug Abuse, Dependency, and Withdrawal, 2012, in Therapy and Sleep Medicine, the authors stated, In studies that looked at Zolpidem, Ambien, use in both human and animal models, there was less risk of physical dependence than seen with benzodiazepines. However, other animal studies demonstrated withdrawal symptoms which are comparable to those seen with chronic benzodiazepine treatment. So that was definitely not definitive. <laughs> Let's look at a 2019 study in the Journal of Neuropsychopharmacology. Wow, that just flowed off my tongue, didn't it? Neuropsychopharmacology. You know, probably about five or ten years ago, that would have gotten caught on my tongue. <laughs> and I wouldn't, now I can just say terms like that. I'm spending far too much time in medicine lately. <laughs> Anyway, in the conclusion of this paper, the author stated, Both previous number of anecdotal reports and current data may well suggest that the misuse, abuse, dependence, and withdrawal issues may be associated with the use of all Z drugs, although Zoloplin, Sonata, may present comparatively lower levels of risk. So it appears like these also are having a lot of problems with withdrawal issues, although one of the drugs, Sonata, may have a lower level of risk than maybe the Ambien. And the, um, what's the other one? Woo! Ambien Lunesta. Uh, Lunesta, that's the other one. <laughs> Let's take a look at the Ashton Manual for one more source here. Here's what she said about hypnotics and sedatives. 
Most other hypnotics and sedatives act in a similar way to benzodiazepines, including barbiturates, chloral derivatives. Okay, this is one's going to trap me. Ethchloral, okay. <laughs> ethchlorvinyl, ethchlorvinyl or placidol. <laughs> I'm just leaving that in. Um, Zopaclone or zimavane and imavane, zolpidem, Ambien, Zolaplan, Sonata, and incidentally, alcohol. None of these drugs should be used as alternative sleeping pills or for sleeping droughts during benzodiazepine withdrawal. All can cause a similar type of dependence, and some are more toxic than benzodiazepines. So that's probably confusing. I have a mantra that has rarely proved me wrong in my journey with benzos. When in doubt, fall back on Ashton. As far as the podcast goes, we treat Z drugs very similarly to benzodiazepines with similar risks of dependence and withdrawal. I've not seen any solid evidence that says that it's less or more or anything like that. It seems to be quite similar. Question. Are there other side effects of Z drugs? As with all medications, Z drugs have a list of possible side effects that may occur during use, and these are usually very long lists if you ever look at the paperwork that comes with any drug. Side effects can differ based on the type of Z drug, of course, but this list usually includes depression, fractures, falls, and even an increased risk of death, among others. In 2019, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration released a boxed warning advising that rare but serious injuries have happened after taking hypnotics because of sleep behavior such as sleepwalking, sleep driving, and engaging in other activities when not fully awake. These behaviors appear to be more common with Lunesta, Sonata, and Ambien, aka the Z-drugs. As part of this boxed warning, the FDA also added a contraindication which is the agency's strongest warning, stating that patients who have previously experienced an episode of complex sleep behavior, as I mentioned above, should not take these drugs. In a 2019 article on the FDA's website titled, Taking Z Drugs for Insomnia? Know the Risks, the author stated, FDA has received reports of people taking these insomnia medicines and accidentally overdosing, falling, being burned, shooting themselves, and wandering outside in extremely cold weather, among other incidences. Since Ambien was approved in 1992, the FDA has identified 66 serious cases of complex sleep behaviors after a person has taken a Z-drug, 20 of which resulted in death. Question. Are the symptoms of Z-drug dependence different from benzodiazepines? As I mentioned earlier, for the most part, no. The truth is, we don't have a lot of research on the difference. Since Z drugs act on the same GABA-A receptors as benzodiazepines, it seems logical to me that the effects on long-term complications would be similar. And so far, that's what we've seen. Professor Ashton wrote in the 2001 foreword to her famous manual the following. Zopaclone and Zolpidem which although not benzodiazepines act in the same way and have the same adverse effects, including dependence and withdrawal reactions. 
She also listed the top four Z drugs in her manual and treated them like benzodiazepines. In addition, Ashton warned about being prescribed Z drugs in lieu of benzodiazepines. She said, occasionally your doctor may suggest other drugs for particular symptoms, but do not take the sleeping tablets, Zolpidem, Zopaclone, or Zoloplon, as they have the same actions as benzodiazepines. Question, how should one taper from a Z drug? Let's go back to Ashton, shall we? Because that's a great place to start with all these questions. In her manual, she lists several withdrawal schedules, including a substitution schedule dedicated to withdrawing from Zopaclone, or imavane zimavane a Z drug, in Schedule 12. The majority of articles I researched on Z-drug withdrawal either included benzodiazepines in the narrative or simply just referred the reader to benzodiazepine withdrawal information. I did not find any significant difference in instructions for withdrawing from Z-drugs versus benzodiazepines. Question. Any final thoughts? You know, terminology in medical science is very confusing. I think we've all seen that especially when those of us outside the medical arena have to make up our own terms because the medical establishment hasn't caught on yet. The term benzos can have different meanings depending on who is saying it. I usually mean benzodiazepines and non-benzodiazepines or Z-drugs when I say benzos. I know others who do the same, but some do not, and thus the confusion. The Benzo survey of 2018-2019 created by Dr. Christy Huff and Dr. Jane McCubrey did include Z-drugs in the survey, and we have reported on that data. But others, well, the FDA boxed warning on benzodiazepines from 2020 is only referring to benzodiazepines. Z-drugs, or non-benzodiazepines, are not even mentioned once in that specific warning. Now, Z-drugs have their own FDA-boxed warning, but it's not about long-term use, withdrawal, and complications associated with that. Instead, it's about side effects like sleepwalking and complex sleep behaviors. Now, this is great progress for benzodiazepines to get that FDA warning, but again, leaving Z-drugs behind. I wish this was much simpler, <laughs> but it's not. And we will continue to try and clarify our language and meanings as we go along. But I do want to say that we need more reference information. We need more, we need some websites. We need more education about Z-drugs. And we definitely need more research. We can do better. Well, that wraps up our feature. I hope we covered the information you were looking for. If not, let me know. I'm happy to add in things in our mailbag and story and even revisit this subject down the line and do a whole other episode on it. I don't want to leave Z-Drugs behind. And now, before we get to our moment of peace, please allow me just 25 seconds for our disclaimer. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered medical advice in any way. The host of this podcast is not a medical professional, nor is he engaged in rendering medical, health, or psychological advice, nor any other kind of personal or professional services. The views and opinions expressed by our listeners and interview guests on this podcast, whether read from textual submissions or presented in their own voice, do not necessarily reflect those of the Benson Free Podcast or of its host.
Withdrawal tapering or any other change in dosage of benzodiazepines, non-benzodiazepines, or any other prescription drugs should only be done under the direct supervision of a licensed physician. Our full disclaimer can be viewed on our website at bedsofree.org slash disclaimer. And that brings us to our closing, our moment of peace. It's just one minute, and it's an opportunity to quiet your mind a bit before you return to the chaos of the real world. Please remember that you should only do this if you are in a safe place where you can close your eyes, relax, and let the world pass by without you for a minute. Today's mantra is on gratitude. Every one of us has something, multiple things, to be grateful for, even if we are in the middle of benzo withdrawal. Find one thing, the one thing you are most grateful for in your life today, and focus on that. Today's mantra is, I am grateful for. It can be your spouse, your children, your home, your friend, your job. Whatever that one thing is for you, that's the focus. Let's get started. Close your eyes and relax. Take a deep breath in. Hold it for a second and let it out slowly. Let's do that again. Take a deep breath in. Hold it for a second and let it out slowly along with all the stress of the day. One more time. Take a deep breath in. Hold it for a second and let it out slowly, relaxing your entire body. Now just breathe slowly and naturally. And focus on your mantra, I am grateful for. If your mind wanders, which it will, just gently bring it back to your mantra. No judgment whatsoever. Continue to do this for one minute. Our next scheduled episode is episode 112, and it will be released next month. 
I'll be taking off the rest of the month of December to finish out our training course, do a little more website update, and of course, enjoy the holidays with my family. Thank you again for joining me today, and please, let us know how we did. Keep calm, taper slowly, and take care of yourself. I'll see you next time.